welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with myself, Chris Kitchener, and my podcasting co-host, Gareth Tennant. In this podcast, we explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. And for this episode, we're on the road. Instead of recording in our home offices with the usual dog barking or sneezing noises in the background, we were very lucky to be invited to speak with the team at the Army Centre for Leadership. The Centre for Army Leadership is the UK's centre of excellence and a professional standards authority for the British Army's leadership and leader development. As it says on its website, the Centre for Army Leadership exists to champion leadership excellence and to optimise the Army's human edge that underpins operational success. They support the development of exceptional leaders, not just for the British Army, but for the whole nation. So we were delighted to be joined by Colonel Dean Cannum, OBE of the Mercian Regiment. Colonel Cannum graduated from the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst in the year 2000, spending most of his regimental duty in the 1st Battalion, the Worcestershire and Sherwood Foresters Regiment, and the 2nd Battalion, the Mercian Regiment, on tours in Northern Ireland, Sierra Leone, and as the reconnaissance platoon commander in Afghanistan in 2004, and then again in 2011. He took command of the 1st Battalion, the Mercian Regiment in 2020, taking the battle group on operations in Estonia in 21, and commanding the lead armoured battle group until spring 23, when he became the head of the Centre for Army Leadership, based at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. So in this episode, we're delighted to be talking to Colonel Cannum at the home of the Centre for Army Leadership. Well, thank you for joining us, Colonel, and thank you for hosting us here at the Centre of Army Leadership. Absolute pleasure. I think to start with, it's probably worth explaining to our listeners what the Centre of Army Leadership is all about and why you exist. The, the Centre of Army Leadership it is effectively the professional standards authority for leadership in the Army, uh, but in more practical terms, we are the proponent of good, ideally excellent leadership throughout the entire Army, and that's for private soldiers to generals and that's through their whole career as well. So with that in mind, you're you're based here at Sandhurst, which is historically the officer training mm-hmm. establishment for, for the army. How do you try to mitigate the sort of potential bias that you would have from being surrounded by officer training? And of course when we talk about leadership it, it's quite easy to get dragged into thinking about commanding officers and more senior officers commanding at you know, divisional or, or brigade level, how do you ground yourself to, to make sure that you're thinking about all of the Army's people? Yeah, so we have uh, in our staff structures, we've got a, a wo one who's just finished as a regimental sergeant major, so he's absolutely vested in soldier development. He keeps us true on that stuff. And we make sure that we go out and speak to all of the soldier training academies fairly routinely as well. So we're doing as much in the soldier space as in the officer space, uh, whilst we're based here at Sandhurst. But that's fine because most of the stuff that actually lands with soldiers, they wouldn't recognize, or it's not branded as Royal Military Academy Sandhurst leadership training, it's leadership training, which we've done the, the research, the thinking and the writing on, and then we pass on to the training establishments to turn into their own products. 
So with me representing the business world, how do you see or interact with people outside of the military? Clearly, there's enough to be going on with um, and, and to understand. And it's a, it's a day to day calling. But the world of, of business and leadership obviously has some interesting takes on it. How do you interact with those and how do you learn lessons and bring those into your world? Yes, we are a small team, but I think with exponential outputs and influence, we don't have the ability or capacity to go around on the road all the time visiting every army unit, every other public sector organisation or business to see how they're doing things, most importantly, but also tell them about how we do things. And so we have to be quite creative, and that's why our podcasts uh, are fairly popular, I think, because it's a good opportunity for us to expose some of our thinking and live it through other people's stories and our social media presence is pretty strong and we get a lot of engagement on that as well and a lot of it's really good so we kind of bypass a lot of the old traditional certainly command structures as far as passing messages down is concerned specific military space we write the doctrine we write the doctrine notes in between each publication and then we push that out as hard as we can to all the armies organizations and try and keep it readable well that's that's probably a good thing to touch on as we sort of move into this conversation as a civilian for want of a better word that's that's really interesting to me about the vehicle that you use to communicate this information can you talk about that documentation particularly because i know it's available and anyone can download it. in fact anyone can go to the website and download all of those so can you talk about the kinds of things you create and produce and why other people even outside of the military might want to look at that information yeah, certainly. Our doctrine, we're, we're on version two now, but it will broadly evolve and be republished every four or five years because with the amount of research that needs to go into it and the changes in the army, changes in society, etc., that's about the right cadence to write something certainly updated, if not completely new, each time. But obviously there'll be things which emerge in between that, those publications which we need to get out a bit quicker. And so... For example, we published a doctrine note on leading through crisis, which had uh, then a supplement on COVID specifically, which we got out and is still being used by people in certain organisations. We've just done one on followership because that's reared its head. It's been around probably outside military spheres a lot longer than it has in, but it's just something which is gaining traction in military circles now. So we felt the need to, to get something out on that. And these things prove really popular. They also give us a focus for the bits which might build the new core doctrine pamphlets in the future as well. And as you say, everything we do is open source and anyone military or otherwise can search that on the website. It's funny, it. it's, it's, it's a very military term, doctrine, but it's a PDF that talks about some of these ideas mm. and concepts, whether it be the, the behaviours of a leader or whether it be the values, the standards. I think these are really, really great documents to go look at. And, and obviously, coming from the business world, often you'll, you'll, you'll find separate organisations that actually charge a lot of money to bring you this wisdom when actually this is distilled over many years with the experts who use this day-to-day. -day. So I would highly recommend you go to the website and we'll make sure we, we put the details in later for all of this content and to look at it. So um, a really great job that you're doing and also a, a shout out for the social media stuff. Um, regularly on Twitter I see all of these concepts that came up. Now don't worry, you don't have to admit, we did an episode, we did an emergency podcast 
after a summer party when no one danced and we had to discuss why no one danced and we recognised it was an issue of followership here. So you mm -hmm. don't need to admit that this pamphlet <laughs> came out after the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> direct result. Direct People result. I, I think a, a happy, happy coincidence. Carol, you've talked about the, the doctrine being updated and you mentioned their sort of leadership lessons around the COVID crisis. How do you... How do you balance the collective experience of the army's people versus the change that we see in society? So both technological change, there's a huge amount of new things that are changing the way that we think, change the way that we make decisions, things like AI and quantum computing and, and all of these emerging technologies. But of course, we're, we're also coming back to, unfortunately, a, a world that is more unstable and the military as a whole is starting to reorientate back towards defence of the realm and peer near peer threats and war fighting as opposed to the the relationship between the lessons we have from experience and the lessons that we can learn from other theatres, other operations mm. around the world. I think we would recognise and say that the leadership the, the core themes of leadership remain the same regardless, it's just their application that needs to change. The experience that the senior soldiers and more senior officers in the army have of counterinsurgency operations gives them a certain perspective. And certainly the tactical memories, experiences, and development that they had through those times will put them in really good stead for how they go about their day-to-day -day business, whether that be in the office or out in the field practicing on major combat operation exercises and the like. The change is going to be persistent, it always has been, and being able to adapt and be adaptable is one of the things which the Army focuses on all the time. So I think if you have some visceral experiences operationally, whilst they might not be directly relatable to something which you need to do in the future, they certainly set you up and give you tools that you can look back on as to how your leadership can be effective or better recognising that even individuals that have all the experience that anyone could want will still need to have some leadership development because the context and the situation is always changing. So we, we were, one of the things we do is we talk about influencers and so we do a series of podcasts where we pick people and talk about influence. And one of the things that we've noticed as a habit is that for many of these people, particularly the ones around the Second World War, in the interwar period, they spent lots of time not, as it were, in command, but as it were, thinking about and developing some of these ideas. And we realised that you need to give people space to further develop and evolve these ideas. You've talked about how people take their experiences and those experiences, as it were, make them, give them a fitness, a level of awareness that they can apply to other things. But from your perspective and, and more broadly in the army, how do you, I mean, practically, how do you synthesise these ideas? Do you, do you take two days where you lock yourselves in a room with more tea and biscuits than you can imagine and say, let's talk about these aspects of leadership? How do you take the ideas that you started with at the beginning of the year and try to evolve them? Well, we're, we're very lucky to have two very capable academics in, in the small team. And by having a, a director of research who has been studying military history and leadership specifically for a very long time and a, and a senior researcher that can do the routine academic uh, research and management for us. You bring that together with 
three relatively experienced military members of the team, myself, a major, and a just finished um, regimental sergeant major. And we make then a point of bringing together the academic and cross-sector studies, which our academic team can lead on, and then our military experience, and blend the two together. And that's a very uh, recognised and formal process that we go through to make sure that we're not writing something which is purely academic and therefore quite difficult to translate for people further away from the centre of army leadership in the army and making sure that we are not just making things up as a, a military team who are under pressure to get things out on time and that there's some academic rigour behind it and in all of our engagements with other organisations probably the most valuable bit is learning about how they do leadership and how they're adapting their leadership training and development. And, and do you, I, I, when we talk about leadership and management and businesses, there's all the traditional things that people understand and know. There's the formal process as well. You know, we, we train people or we report on people. But this idea of how do you evolve the ideas is particularly important in my world as a product manager that I have to continually evolve how we think about doing things. Do you, coming back to the way you guys do this, and I think that's fantastic that the Army recognises, A, there is a role for this, and B, it has this idea of we want to blend the academic world with the practical military world. But do you wake up one morning, does someone on the team come into the office one day and say, I was talking to someone and they talked about this concept, we should talk about it. Is it, mm. is it as parochial as that? How do, you, how do you literally grab an idea and move it forward? So I think... Um, some people have described us as the Army's think tank for leadership and I don't mind that description because we will have a look at all of the emerging trends, discussions and views that are contrary to our own, of course, because that's academically sound to do so. And even when we do push stuff out, people challenge us on it and people have different perspectives even within the Army. We're open to that. Uh, we often have people in the team come in and say I read this thing everyone else should read it because it's it matches with what we're saying or it doesn't it's completely contrary and we do have those conversations and between us we hopefully come up with stuff that, which is on trend and interesting or it's stuff that people aren't talking about at all and we think they should be and followership is one of those things it's not something which sits uh, naturally in the lexicon of an army and it's for perhaps some elements of the army not something they think should necessarily sit in the lexicon. But we're happy to have those debates and, and push forward, not necessarily just on what people tell us we should, but what we think should be as well. I think it's really important, and in the business world, we I just don't think we do that. I just think mm. we... We make, for want of a better word, people make it up as they go along, but that's even if they assume it's important. But, but coming back to this idea of the, the, the British military, and particularly the army, has a history of evolving ideas and thought again and again and again. I have to believe that it's not just the army says these these 10 people are going to do this. There's an element of this this lives and breathes through the units as well, both in terms of obviously doctrine, but also thinking about leadership. Is there is there anything formal or is it more just literally an informal thing where a commanding officer brings his team together and says, right guys, let's talk about this. This came up this week. Is there anything more informal? Is there a, a habit or a culture to extend these ideas outside of the, the, uh, the centre? So that's one of the areas that we're really seeking to push forward on now about how we manage to land everything that we're spending the time researching and thinking about right out to the very furthest reaches of the army because the army is busier 
than it has ever been. And that means that it's very, very easy for conceptual developmental things to just get passed over because the pace of life makes it very difficult to do them. Our view would be that making time to stop, pause, think, talk and develop leadership theories and developments has to be a priority because then it makes all the other stuff you're trying to do much more successful. I, I myself was perhaps slightly sceptical turning up to this job seven or eight months ago thinking, well, all this leadership stuff must be done already, right? So there can't be a huge amount going on at the Centre for Armed Leadership and I was absolutely wrong. And I do, I make sure we check ourselves as to, we get a, a huge amount of engagement from outside which is really welcome, but I do make sure that we say every now and then, why are people coming to us? Why do people come to the army to talk about leadership? Should they not be going elsewhere? Should we be going even further out into the reaches to hear what other people have got to say? And Professor Lloyd Clark, who's here as the Director of Research, makes a, a great point in that he says, well, first of all, the Army's been doing it for 350 years, and therefore it has an element of experience. Element of experience, in, yeah. in these sorts of things. Second, we have a Centre for Army Leadership, and that is not a luxury that many organisations have. A, a small but fairly high-powered group of people who are solely focused on researching, studying, writing and talking about it. And thirdly, because the Army, like other service organisations, operates on this contract of unlimited liability, where you may be asked to offer your life or take someone else's in the course of your work, and therefore you're looking at leadership through such a focused lens, because it is life or death, that that really makes you think about it properly. And perhaps in businesses, that incentive isn't there, and, and that might be why people do come to us and why we enjoy such good traction. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, in, in the business world, I think your point about you only need to be serious to that degree about leadership when there is jeopardy, when there is that level of jeopardy. Um, I think also in business, there is a sense that um, typically entrepreneurs who become very successful have already convinced themselves they've already solved all these problems, which actually, as I'm sure you know, that can actually be one of the most dangerous positions to be in. Um, just to shout out something that, that, that the centre does, and th this idea... I'm fascinated about how people share ideas and cross-fertilise. I know you run an essay writing competition, mm -hmm. and I think that's a fantastic way of taking people that you might otherwise never speak to and say, pick a topic that you're passionate about or an idea. I think that's a fantastic way of sharing information. And again, go back to this, because we, we, we did a recording yesterday about someone. If you look through military history, some of the people that have developed the, the, the dramatic changes in doctrine have had this ability to exchange this information in a safe way and not know if they're right or wrong. Yeah, I, th I think also going back to that point about you know, the, the army having that focus that sometimes we ask our people that they're, they might need to take a life or, or, or give their life or make a decision that's going to lead to other people having to do those things. You know, it really focuses the the thought around how you lead your people. But I think there's also a dynamic where in the commercial world, you know, business never stops. You're always on operations in the commercial world, whereas in the army, and perhaps more the army than the other services, there is there are always operations going on around the world, but the whole of the army isn't always at mm. war doing these things. So there is a stop-start sort of nature to 
to how you do that. And a lot of your focus is clearly on preparing and developing for the next operation. How much does that then drive the, the thinking between the leadership that's required on operations? And I'm, I'm thinking really at the operational and down to the tactical level, um, but it probably applies to the strategic level as well, versus creating good leaders that build good cultures and good environments when, when you're training, developing and doing the things that the army does outside of deployed operations. Yeah, probably one of the things that generates the most discussion within groups that we talk to is this idea of needing to be able to switch styles as a leader across the full range between a very directive style or a very affiliative and visionary style on, on the other end. And for individuals to have that full range of skills is firstly very rare, but also very difficult to achieve. Self-awareness being the first big challenge and knowing which bits you are good at and which you are not. And then either improving yourself so that you do have that full range of styles and or replacing those gaps with other people in your team who, who fill in a particular leadership style that you might need to employ at particular times. But everything is within a changing context. And so the real skill is recognising which style is required for each context and being able to switch between them. And even better, if you then tell the people you're leading why you're leading in a particular style in a particular context, then they're much more likely to realise why you're doing that and, and be good followers in the process. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about the switching styles for different environments. Leadership and organisational culture are effectively two sides of the same coin. And there's a link there, of course, between the individual. And I think when we talk about leadership, we often think about how do you develop an individual to be a better leader and the organisation, the culture. And that's where I think the military has the term command, which is not necessarily recognised as much in the, in the commercial um, or, or civilian world. How do, you, how do you sort of work around cultural change and the interactions between leaders at different levels of command rather than just focusing on how do we develop individuals to be better leaders? The, um, we're doing a lot of work next year actually on how the interaction between command and leadership and command we would just recognise as authority I guess is the civilian yeah. equivalent of specific legal authority over people which is vested in a, a position rather than and their, their title rather than an individual. Um, the there is, of course, really close links between the two. We would also say there's a, a clear distinction because leaders aren't necessarily the commanders, yeah. certainly not all of the time. And so we're talking about slightly different things, but that work really closely together. One thing which we're often asked to talk about and which we politely decline is management. And so the army would break down how it we achieves all these things into command, leadership and management. Yes. And sometimes we get approached by people we want to talk about management things and we say actually that's it's not really our thing if you want to talk about systems and processes that look quite scientific then you're probably looking elsewhere rather than leadership noting that of course leaders need to know how their systems and processes work in order to be able to manage and lead their people effectively so we do have some of these challenges but we could never say we're not interested or that's not relevant to us because they're also so intertwined. Well, we did we did have a conversation and we, we've talked about Sandhurst before and the, the idea that 
um, if push comes to shove, you need leaders and commanders, not managers. What, what's your take on that? Because I think we had a bit of a debate about that, which is it feels to me like these are three sides of a triangle. And if one of the mm. sides of a triangle, the triangle, clap, yep. bad, bad analogy. But the point is that the management is just as important. Can you talk mm. about that? Because is it someone else does the management piece? Or do you bring those things together and try and blend them? Yeah. If, it, if only it was as simple as one person doing each function, then that would be, <laughs> be very easy to train leaders and managers separately. But the reality, of course, is that um, that isn't the case. And even for very young individuals in the army, soldiers or officers, they will be expected to transition between command leadership and management on an almost hourly, minute by minute basis. And probably without even realising that they're doing so, because if we take writing people's annual appraisals as a management function, yeah. not doing it or doing it badly is very much a poor leadership <laughs> example. And so yeah. that it's a bit too simplistic to distinguish between them. They blend to get the right they, outcome. They do blend. I think perhaps processes is a better distinction, because leaders certainly have to manage, managers probably have to lead sometimes as well, but there's probably specific people in an organisation who deal with processes. I think that's a fair. One is about participating in the process and being able to participate effectively to support the outcome you want. And another one is what is the process we should have? I think that's fair. I wanted to go back to something which I thought was really, really interesting. You talked about that people need to change their leadership styles. Now, you know, you say that out loud and it's painfully obvious that that's true. You're in different situations. That, mm. But I, I look back in my, particularly my business career, and there's all sorts of things like Myers-Briggs where they tell you your style. Mm. And of course, they tell you your one style. This idea that actually people have to develop and be able to move between styles and be aware when they're relevant... Talk to me a bit about that. Do you do you have a, a, a more systemic view of what that means? Are there, can, do, do you even describe different leadership styles for different times? Tell us a bit about that, because I don't think we talk about that enough. So I think in, in the conversations I've had with people outside the army, the thing they're probably most surprised about after they've been and seen us and listened to the sorts of things we talk about is that we don't really labour any points about a very directive, what people would recognise as a military or army style of leadership at all. There are probably pretty rare occasions when somebody needs to be using authority as their only lever and being very directive in the leadership. That's probably a very small percentage of the time that an army leader needs to be using that style. And actually, we spend most of our time at the moment in our conversations with people around the army. We talk to them about being more affiliative, more visionary, being better at developing their emotional intelligence, particular skills like active listening, creating psychological safety, recognising that they need to communicate differently with different members of their team because they are different people and what you're saying, each of them will hear slightly differently. And these are the skills which actually we're trying to make people better at because a significant proportion of their time as army leaders will be spent using that style, those styles of leadership rather than the others. And it might be that people coming into the army as civilians are probably expecting a more authoritative, directive style as well. And actually, you need to bring them away from that rather than turn them towards it. I think it's, I mean, I, I think having had sort of a toe in both, in both sides, I think it's the cliche. I think it's the cliche, but the, the very easy answer is look at the outcomes the British military has. Not just the military outcomes, but... 
you know, supporting disaster relief and saying we have to solve this particular problem, why wouldn't you have a more sophisticated, nuanced view? But I do wonder, we, we had this conversation just before we, we, we started recording, which was, it, and maybe this is wrong, but it does feel there was a period when more directive was important. You know, we've, we've done a lot where we talk about the Second World War because of our particular interest in that piece of history but it feels like that was a lot more directive there's very little written about empathy and active listening and followership mm. and all those kinds of things D do you think there has been an evolution and, and is that evolution was it a dramatic change where someone said stop this is what we're going to be how has the army gone from being that more directive and the cliche of the sergeant major shouting and actually being here at Sandhurst, I'm sure there's a little bit of shouting at the early stages <laughs> yeah. of training, but how has that changed? Well, I'd like to think that it's because you now have a sense of army leadership with people in it. That That's a good answer. Thinking <laughs> That's about a good it. answer. And, uh, and people are hopefully listening. But of course, society changes as well. And the people coming into the army have a different perspective on how to go about their business and how the army should go about its business, and that's entirely healthy and, and proper. And so there will always be this circular movement between the people coming into the army, changing it, and the army either catching up or trying to change those people as well. And hopefully they're complementary. And over time, cultures evolve. You can you can change climates very quickly by changing individuals or, or circumstances, but culture will take a long time to change. Um, and that's all we're seeing. We're just seeing the army evolve in the same way that society I, does as well. I think this is this is another one of those interesting things where we've we've said this lots, but I think people still nod and then don't believe us, which is organizations try to declare what the culture is. It's the people within the organization that drive the culture. Yeah. And it's the job of the leaders to create an environment where that can be a positive and, and healthy culture. Well, we so, talked about the the need for leaders in an organisation to be very, very clear about what the values they expect are, which is subtly different from saying this is the culture we have. And I know that's something that the Centre for Army Leadership is very, very clear about. Mm. You have a, a, a dedicated set of values that you expect the people in the army to uphold, live, and, and their behaviours are going to be driven, hopefully, by the values that they're mm. trying to uphold. Do you want to tell us what those values are and why they're important to the army? Yeah, so in, in broadest terms, the army breaks down its leadership thinking and, and writing into what leaders are, what leaders know, and what they do. And so it's about character, knowledge, and actions. And we use that framework for all of our research, for all of our um, teachings, if you like, if that's the right word, as well. And to get reflections back from people, if we package them up in that order, then character what leaders are, is the foundation of everything. And I think perhaps I'm not in business, but certainly over the last couple of years, we see examples of pretty big organisations who are upended by the behaviours of one or two individuals. Yep. Not their lack of knowledge or lack of ability to do their job, but a, a lack of character that upends an entire organisation, probably because people aren't recruited specifically for character, recruited for their knowledge and their ability to do their profession. I think there's maybe a realisation in the civilian and business sector now that character is as important, if not more important, than the other stuff, because you can train people to be more knowledgeable and more skilled at their role, but perhaps changing someone's character takes a bit more 
time. So the Army's values, standards and behaviours that are written down, I would imagine every recruit when they finish basic training will be able to tell you what those are. Of course, the real challenge is then understanding them, living by them, yeah. adapting behaviours accordingly. And that's, that's the skill of changing the army, changing people's character through a very, um, not necessarily prescribed methods, but a prescribed list, the values, courage, discipline, respect, integrity, loyalty and selfless commitment, which have endured for, since the first time they were written down, 23 years ago now. And getting people to really understand them rather than just know the list of them is the, the thing that will change people's behaviours. If this makes you feel any better, every business I've been in, and I have to be very careful because some of those people listen to the podcast, talks about the values of the business and they have precisely the same challenge. The first thing is nobody can repeat them because we don't have a, there's typically not a framework to drill it into people. But even when people know them and say, ah, oh, I'm going to give an Amazon gift voucher for the person who can tell me what they are. The next problem is that doesn't matter at all. You have mm -hmm. to understand it yeah. and want to live it. So these, I think these problems and challenges are absolutely universal. I think the military has the edge on the business world because you really understand what you get at the end because of it. And, and that, that one, I wanted to lead on to another topic, which frankly is more about me wanting to talk about the topic than ask the question. And it might be safe this way, which is lots of the things we have talked about over the last half an hour, including words like empathy, followership, values. I've heard lots of people both in the UK and, and oddly, particularly in the US, almost talk about as weakness. In other words, we want war fighters and the war fighters go out and they have no compunction and they will kill the enemy and there's none of this. And the word, which is our least favorite word on the podcast, is this is all woke. Mm. I, would, I would love you to talk about, given that there's a group of people who feel these are weaknesses, mm. why is it the, what are you gonna get at the end of the day with a soldier with a rifle in their hand, patrolling the streets of wherever they are, what are you going to get that's different because you are teaching them these things? Yeah. It's a great question. It, um, perhaps it's something I should have spelled out right at the beginning when I said why the Centre for Army Leadership exists. It's a very clear correlation as, between good leadership and greater fighting power. The Centre for Army Leadership, me, I could exist just because talking about leadership all day is a cool job. It is. It is. But <laughs> it has a purpose for the Army because it generates greater fighting power at the point at which it's needed. Now, there are several steps and moves in between us doing the research, the writing, the talking about it, and that generating greater fighting power. But where the, the Army's three components of fighting power, the physical, the, the people and the stuff that we have, the conceptual, how we think, how we develop tactics, etc., and the moral, leadership, ethics, etc., probably commonly accepted, certainly in most of the conversations I have, if the moral is underpinning the other two, because without them, they're, they're pointless to have, then leadership is fundamental to generating fighting power, because there is no tactics and concepts, and there is no physical army that can be employed if it doesn't have a moral foundation. And so that's the, the easiest comeback to the naysayers that, that I also meet who say, I'm not sure why you're concentrating on this stuff. You're just going to make everyone 
a bit soft and thinking about it too much. And challenge culture is a, a great example as well. When we talk to people about challenging effectively and having the psychological safety to challenge in, in a military organisation, that doesn't seem like the, the right thing to do at all. Of course, we, we give orders, we expect people to follow them. Actually, quite the opposite. We, we give orders, we expect people to offer an opinion at the right place and time. And we expect people to receive that offer of an opinion in the right fashion as well. Now, of course, if that challenge were to come in the last 10 metres of a bound into a building that you're attacking, that's probably not the right time and place to offer an alternative opinion to that which has been given to you. But if an hour before that there's a discussion about how best to potentially achieve, then that might be the opportunity for someone who isn't in command, who might not even recognise themselves as a leader, to actually say, I've just got this idea about how we could potentially do this differently. And for the people in command and leading to say, that's a really good idea, let's have a look at doing that. Or, I hear that is a really valid contribution, but my experience and training tells me actually we're going to do it this way, but make sure you keep offering opinions in the future as well. The, the ability to challenge is very often misconstrued as something which could never work in a, in a hierarchical organisation in the army. And so I actually, I'm trying to move away from using challenge culture as a phrase because the word challenge itself is quite adversarial and I'm, I'm struggling to pin down exactly what else to use but I think the best we've settled on is offer have, yeah. a, have a culture of offering I, I love the idea of offering well look why don't we take a quick break and continue on that idea when we come back just after this Well, welcome back. Just before the break, Colonel Cannon was talking about challenge culture. Let's get straight back into the conversation uh, with me telling one of my famous training dits. Um, we, in fact, even pre-Dartmouth. This is going to be the, a training dit. This is going this. This to be a training dit. They're not as exciting, but they're all that I've got. Otherwise, I'm going to have to tell the story about kissing um, cabin crew and British Airways just to sort of distract people. Mm. I'll tell you about that one afterwards. You might enjoy that. Uh, and it's not as bad as it sounds. But um, the first thing I was taught before we went into AIB was on command tasks. You, the first thing you would do is you would receive the, 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 the instructions. You'd receive the orders. You would then go away. You would pick a timekeeper, very important, which I carry to this day. Who's my timekeeper? And then what you would do is you would brief the team and you would say, does anyone have any ideas? That was literally one of the first principles I was taught, which is you go around the team and say, does anyone have any really good ideas? And I think it's I think this is a piece of that challenge, which is if you describe it in that way, why wouldn't you ask your team for mm -hmm. good ideas? You'd be an idiot not to. But I, 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 I think this is this is a lesson which maybe personally I get a bit annoyed about, which is this idea that. All of these values, techniques and ideas, and we talked about diversity as one of them recently. I think if people misunderstand these, there is a moral imperative, which is I think we all would like to do the right thing for our people because we're good people. But there is a business and obviously a military imperative. I want to win and these things will give me the best possible chance to win. And we see this time and time again. We even see this in current conflicts. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things that keep reappearing in our podcast. One is this idea of mission command or Auschwitz tactic. 
Um, and we've talked about where it comes from, how it can be applied, and we've talked about it in a very military sense, and we've also talked about it in the business world. And the, the second thing that we keep talking about is adapting to a rapidly changing environment. And I think what's coming across in the conversation with you, Colonel, very clearly is that when you talk about leadership, it's quite easy to be quite reductive and think about an individual at a point in time having to make a decision. But of course, you build that culture, you build that environment, you build that relationship between the leaders and the followers. You understand the purpose, what you're trying to achieve. You understand the values you're trying to uh, espouse and live to. And that creates, over time, these compounding effects. Mm -hmm. And we spoke to Mark McGrath, who runs a podcast called No Way Out, and it's focused all around the work of John Boyd and the OODA loop and uh, sort of emergent adaptive behaviours. And, and what's really clear is that you don't have time to you know, learn these things at the point where you've got to make the right decisions. You don't have time to have very sort of didactic command chains. And so that's the link to, to the mission command idea, this, this idea that people know what they need to achieve they know what the intent of the commander is, and then they adapt their solutions to the situations that they find themselves in. And I think that's quite easy to understand, but it's very, very difficult to create cultures that do it and do it effectively. Yeah. How much is the Army Leadership Centre working with the field army in developing behaviours that espouse mission command? And how much are you worrying about those team dynamics versus just the the values and the and the the attributes of the individual yeah so we um speak to the land warfare center who run all the training with the army fairly routinely and as i said previously their command doctrine which they own sits very much alongside ours physically and conceptually on on the desks yeah. in the offices in there we do get the feedback so from all the big training exercises the leadership themes we gather in, in the same way that we do for climate assessments of units and, and that sort of thing. And I think the the outreach from in both individuals and units is a pretty steady drumbeat. Everyone wants to talk to us, and that's a, a great reflection on the fact that we do something very positive and we always take a positive stance on our leadership stuff. We're not uh, a team that goes out looking for bad examples to beat people up with. We very much focus on positive aspects of leadership and hence people do talk to us and they do open up and they are willing to share stuff. So as an example, the, the US, our equivalent, now also called the Centre for Army Leadership in the US Army, are really open with sharing their data specifically that they've been collecting because it's quite a similar, similar organisation looking at things through a similar lens and just their data on their people. In, in hard numbers terms is really useful to us. We don't have as much data going back as long as, as they have. But we also get people to come in and tell us their stories and the some of them make it onto podcasts, other pe people put it on paper, other people write lessons and insights for us. And so we hoover up as much as we can from people's routine experiences, both as teams, as leaders, as individuals to to make sure we're staying up to date and we're getting a perspective on what what people want to hear we we operate a network because 
I've said a few times, we're a small team, but we actually create uh, a much bigger team. So we have Centre for Family Leadership activists, there's now about 500 of them. They are soldiers and officers out in the field army who, if we start to think about something or we write something that might be a little bit controversial or we need a bit of feedback on, then we fire it out to those 500 people. And then they come back with some very brutal uh, feedback for us, positive or negative, and tell us what they think. That's a really good sounding board for us. We can also go to them and ask them for ideas about what's happening in your bit of the organisation. Tell us about it. And more widely, we operate a network of fellows, Centre for Army Leadership Research Fellows, and they are across the world and across industries and sectors, from senior people in NATO, senior people in banks, senior academics, head teachers, astronaut selectors, etc. And say, so, you know, what's what's happening in leadership in, in your part of the world and what can we learn from that? So I think we're always receptive to everyone's ideas. The the army specific stuff is something we need to stay as up to date with, particularly as tactics, operational context change, then there might well be some fundamental adjustments in leadership for the future, perhaps over the next couple of years, um, how technology changes how people lead will be an, an interesting area because whilst technology will certainly change tactics in the, in the physical component and probably the conceptual component, how much it changes the moral component will be a really interesting uh, factor and that's, that's always going to be emerging but I think as you alluded to earlier we're probably at an inflection point just now. So that I, and I hadn't known that you had activists. I knew about the fellowship, but I know about actually. That sounds like actually a fantastic feedback loop to mm. ensure that you're staying abreast of of the most relevant and evolving parts of leadership from wherever they are. Reflecting that back, though, so this is another challenge you have in the business world, which is perhaps there's a small number of people that are equally passionate about this, but of course they can only talk to and influence so many people. I would imagine the British Army is a whole different scale of challenge. How do you most effectively take all of that learning and try to disseminate it and bring it to life actually in the field, in the day-to-day -day British Army, wherever they might be, whether it's Brunei or whether it's Cyprus or whether it's Catterick or how do you how do you bring that to life to get people to that someone as they're having breakfast, are thinking, oh, that's interesting, I want to talk about that. Yeah, so outside of the podcasts and the, the stuff that we push out on social media, what we do is target what we would describe as the high-value target courses that people go on. And so now we will go out to speak to all of the junior leader courses when they form up. We will go to speak to the seniors' courses when they're coming together collectively to train from across every reach of the army. We'll brief the officers course here, we'll brief the officers courses on their promotion courses, all the way right up through to the generals course that runs here as well. And we and so to each of them. What, what format do you have an hour and you pick three interesting topics? How do you decide what you're going to communicate? Because I mean, you have endless amounts of content and ideas. Mm. How do you pick yeah. what you're going to communicate um, and how do you communicate it? Most of what we're doing is raising awareness and signposting. Yeah, we would love to spend days with all of these people training and developing and yeah. helping them reflect on their leadership. 
but we don't have the ability to do that. So much of it is raising awareness. This is what is available to you as far as self-awareness tools, first step, developmental tools, second step, reflection tools. Make sure you are actually changing and making it easier for them to realise that one, they should do something about continually developing the leadership. No one's ever going to be the finished product. To give them the stuff on a plate to say, this is what you can use to be better. And then encouraging them ideally with a follow-up to say, what have you changed? Because my greatest reflection in my first nearly year here is that largely everyone we speak to is captivated by the things we're saying, agrees that they're really important, agrees that they should do something to continually develop themselves and then walks out the room and gets completely consumed by their day-to-day job yeah. and, and that's it. And so another particular area of focus for us is actually getting people to change their behaviours. And that can perhaps feel a little bit difficult or intimidating for some people, hence why the self-awareness is the, the first thing which we ask people to do, but then just realising that by making some very small changes with some techniques which we can signpost you to, practising those, realising that actually you get a bit better at them and then just picking another couple and just incrementally over your entire career picking off little bits which you know that you need to be better at because the vast majority of people know themselves deep down if they're willing to have an honest conversation themselves what they need to be better at and then just pick off little bits and get better and better incrementally over the years. That's the, the biggest gap military, civilian, business, whatever, I think is between hearing about how to improve leadership and then actually doing something to change how you do it. It's interesting, as we were talking, I was just wondering, is there a place for a top gun for leadership? And what I mean by that is not a staff course where there's a very particular outcome and it's time, but how do you bring people from out in the community together to spend some focused time to talk Mm -hmm. about these things with the goal of sending them back to be your ambassadors mm. and to, as it were, have mm. exactly as Top Gun was, to bring the aviators together, to train them to be the best, to go back to the squadrons and do the same. I wonder whether there's an element there of leadership. It's And it, it's such a, you know, we've, we've obviously talked about it from the British Army perspective, but this is time and time again, this is true for business as well, where there is so little talked about this and it's, at, at almost at one level, it's either a tick box exercise, and we have, a, I think, a slightly different challenge in, in the business world. Maybe it's not, which is, the I, I think in the military there is an assumption and understanding from day one that good leadership and all of these things you've talked about are to make you a better warfighter. In business, I'm not sure there's a connection between those things. There's a typically what you find is, well, I'm really good and you've made me a VP or a CEO, therefore I don't need to learn anything. And so there, we have this challenge of there isn't that culture of wanting to learn and develop because they see an improvement as yeah. well. It, it's really interesting you talk about the, the 500 people you've got across the army that are providing that feedback. You do climate assessments. You're engaged with... Um, director land warfare to to sort of make sure that there is harmony coherence or, or whatever word you want to use between the command and the leadership that has been developed is there, is there anything more tangible that you're able to measure in terms of measurement of effect that the army leadership or center for army leadership is having on both the fighting power the capability to operate but also in that longer term 
lived values and espoused values. And you talked about the fact that you want to focus on the positive and where things go well. Mm. But there are things about the army that need to change. Mm. There are um, clear examples of leadership failings and there are some cultural aspects that are probably echoes or reflections of wider society that we recognise need to change. We are you know, probably a male-dominated uh, culture um, and there's probably a whole load of other aspects. Is there anything you're able to do to tangibly get a sense of the positive impact that the Central for Army leadership is having? Probably one of the most common conversations, difficult conversations we have and are having is about measurement yeah. and leadership. Well, you'll be pleased to know. This is, I, was about, I was about to say, do you have any KPIs? But I worried that no. you might then look very sad and say, yes, someone told me how to write a set of KPIs. Well, again, I just as I was arriving here at the, the centre, a few weeks before I arrived, I popped my head in just to say hello. And the team had spread out on the table a whole range of spreadsheets. And they were talking about leadership. And I thought, this doesn't feel right at all. Why, why are we mixing leadership and spreadsheets? These things don't sit naturally together well whatsoever uh, and I was ex completely wrong because once I then arrived I got talked through there's another I mean you've, you've come at a really good time because there's some fundamental bits of work which are just landed they have just finished writing the leader competency framework and whilst that sounds very spreadsheety it is but on top of it there's some very digestible slides and, and tools and like we have written down what it is to be a good leader ideally a great leader in the army that has never been written down before that's quite amazing so, isn't it when you yeah. think about that so it's never been written down before and there's a this is years worth of work and there's hundreds of boxes on the spreadsheets behind what are the digestible lessons tools and stuff which people can use to say this is what the army expects me to be what it expects me to know and what it expects me to do and those are the three spreadsheets are no do and it writes it down now that's not a tick box exercise to say, if I just work my way through, say that I'm already good at these or do a bit of work to get better at them, then I've ticked all the boxes, I'm done. Nobody will ever tick all of the boxes. And even if you do tick some of the boxes, then your view will be very different to the other people's view, which is probably even more important. And even if you tick some boxes, if you don't practice those skills and competencies over time, then those ticks will fade and you'll need to come back to them. And so it's, it's a whole career leader development tool which can also be used for input into training design. The army now has a framework where the entire army can refer to, this is what leadership training is designed to develop. That hasn't existed before. There's some civilian companies that have civilian equivalents. They tend to turn into very big, thick well, books it's with interesting you're levels saying that. and um, competencies assigned to the hierarchy of roles. We haven't gone that far, mainly because what that might lead to immediately in this first iteration is an assignment of levels. Well, if you're senior, you've done some time, then you're obviously good at leadership. If you're junior, then you haven't, you've got all this work to do. And that's certainly not the case. So we haven't, we've intentionally on this first iteration, not assigned levels, ranks or, or groups to any of those skills or competencies. The, the, I mean, the reason why I'm smiling is because, and I, this has happened in multiple, typically larger organisations. In the organisation at the moment, we are working on the first company-wide global job framework which is an element which is very similar to what you've just talked about interestingly they do have ranks as levels because that's that actually uh, in a similar way to the military but that also talks about 
people's levels of um, maturity skills, but also in terms of their um, their salary and things like that. Mm-hmm. What's really, and I, I think we have to come back in a year's time if you'll let us. Um, you get to this really interesting point where we have this framework. The next thing is, do you have a framework that can be effectively communicated? beyond the people who wrote the framework. Mm. So it's easy. I wrote the framework. I actually, I participated in this. If someone sits down to me and says, can you explain what this means? That's great. But by the time it gets two or three or four managers out, they'll, I, I don't know what that means and there's interpretation. Yeah. Um, but the other thing as well, exactly as you said, which is that it needs, the, the framework is the first step, but it's the people who understand and can use it as a tool as a second step. Mm. Because, and I've seen this in previous organisations, people say, well, I've looked at what the, the someone five levels above me does, and I already do that, so you should promote me to that level. Yeah. Okay, to your point. I don't think that's what this means, but actually let's talk about what these skills are. So it's a fantastic tool. Your next challenge is then how you use that tool and how it's used within Absolutely. the organization. If, if nothing else, it's a common language. It's a, a baseline for everyone to say, if you're talking about leadership, then it, it's on this page. And if it isn't on this page, you're probably not talking about army leadership or leadership in general, or we've missed something and we need to have a conversation to put it on. The other fundamental thing that's happening this week as we record, is the first army leadership policy will be signed. The army doesn't have any policy on leadership. So talk about what that means, policy so for how, leadership. So how that will play out. And again, it's some, much like spreadsheets. You think, oh, policy for leadership? That doesn't I was sound gonna, that useful. <laughs> that, was, that was the polite version <laughs> yeah. of me saying that sounds like a spreadsheet. Me too. Again, that was my, uh, you know, it was in its draft form when I arrived. And I thought, oh, that doesn't sound particularly, uh, that's not the cool bit of doing leadership. But what it does is it gives director leadership the authority to convene the senior officers who have impact directly on leadership and leadership development across the army twice a year. And it gives him authority signed off by the very top of the army to say, this is what we're going to do collectively on leadership development, which up until now has been conversations. This is what I would like you to do. This is what you should do. Now it is, the army has agreed these things are good for leadership. Therefore, this is what you are going to do for us to collectively get better at leadership and all move in the right direction. And we package it up as saying the army is, as of this week, when the policy is signed, treating leadership as a capability in the same way it has its other full range of capabilities, because capabilities add up to fighting power. And so you are making a point of meeting, talking, discussing, having policy and collectively changing all in the right direction on leadership in the same way you would, and you're investing in it, finance, time and resource, um, collectively to generate greater fighting power, in the same way you would if you were buying a new tank or something like that. Isn't that fascinating, though, because it, 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 it seems counterintuitive, but I know exactly what you mean, which is, the military already know how important leadership is. This has been what we've talked about. You've got many podcasts, documents, doctrine. And yet there's a statement that says, unless people at the top declare officially this is important, you somehow, you don't quite get to the end. This says, um, if you, if this policy hadn't been signed, well, we're busy this year. We're on operations. We, we'd love to do it. But we're not doing it. I think that's a really important statement about 
the people who foster the leadership saying this is as important as anything else. And in, in my world, that would be the equivalent of saying our sales numbers, leadership is as important to us as our sales numbers, which, of course, I don't know of any organization. There, I'm sure there are. No one says that. But I think to your point, the leadership is what drives those sales numbers and the ability to deliver on the things that you do with those sales Thank numbers. You. So mm. I love that, that actually there are people at the top of the military who said we are going to spend time and effort. And the idea that it's a capability as important as cyber or mm. artillery or logistics, I think that's that's really interesting. I mean, it it reflects actually... I think an incredibly healthy approach to leadership in the in the, the British Army, um, and I think it it's a really good example of, you know, even even myself and I have lots of friends and I know a little bit about the military. The preconceptions you have actually, if you scrape away the surface, there's a lot of really intelligent and thoughtful things. It is not by accident that the British Army is a beacon for leadership. You have to work hard at it every day. And that involves people at the top saying we're going to put time, money and effort by it. Yeah, I, I think there's, a, there's an elephant in the room perhaps that I'd like to tackle now, which is we've talked about some of the emerging technology, social change, mm. and, and we've, we've talked about internally to the army where you're going, what your, what your concept is. But of course, the army doesn't fight alone. It is part of... UK defence, so there is the Royal Air Force, the Royal Navy, Special Forces, Civil Service, support to Ministry of Defence, and a whole load of other aspects. And we are starting to recognise the need to interoperate far more greatly, both on a technical level, but also on that human level. And there is strategic command now, and I know that you had uh, General Jim Huckenhall on, on the on your podcast uh, a few weeks ago, mm. and he's commander of Strategic Command, whose job is to try and pull that all together. This is the centre of army leadership. So my first question is, do you think there's a different type of leadership for the army versus the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force? And secondly, the follow-up question is, how are you working alongside other aspects of UK defence to build a coherent vision of how we develop military leadership mm. more generally in a in a joint manner well again you're going to think i'm making this up but actually the defense leadership network meeting is in a couple of days time and so we routinely speak to the navy the air force and the civil service about how they're conducting leadership development and we also speak to the leadership college for government about how wider departmental leadership developments are taking place i think there are if you look at the the values and standards and the leadership codes of the different services broadly they're pretty similar civil service is different for obvious reasons but we do speak to them frequently i think there are nuances there are there is different context if the the principles can be the same the way the times at which you are applying your different styles will all depend on the context and that can be a very localised short-term context or it can be the overarching context in which a service operates. I think it's maybe a little bit too simplistic, the, the adage that you know, the army fights its people where the RAF and the Navy fight their platforms. I was hoping you were going to say something more disparaging about the army. <laughs> and by the way, particularly Air Force, as yeah. they're the only people not represented here. By the way, for Air Force people, I'm only joking. 
the, um, I think that's maybe a little bit too simplistic, increasingly so, potentially in the future, as the yeah. army's um, level of expectations for how people are operating platforms rather than people perhaps grows. Um, why, why do you... That, I mean, I, I'd not heard that before. I can understand why, but why... Why would the army think it's not fighting platforms? I appreciate they've got lots of people with pointy sticks and things that go bang at the end of the day, but that's interesting. Why do you think there isn't this platform view of the military, so, of the army? Sorry. Yeah, so I th the reason I, I don't necessarily agree with the phrase is because I don't think it's about the platforms. I think it's about range. And the fact is that in the majority of cases, generally speaking, because, of course, there are distinctions with the Royal Marines or the RF Regiment, etc., etc., and other circumstances. The Army is fighting the close battle. The majority of its people are fighting mm -hmm. the close battle. The Army can be fighting in, in the deep as well, and, and increasingly so in the future. But the, the visceral nature of war is one which the Army experiences more so than the other services. And I think that's the distinction mm, in leadership contexts. I, don't, I think the platform bit is a bit too simplistic now these days. So there's there's an area that we've not spent a lot of time on, and it's certainly n nothing that I've been particularly involved in, but you might describe the Army and Navy and Air Force as large enterprise organisations, but of course one part of the, the, the British military is our special forces, and typically they're much smaller units. Do you think there's anything fundamentally different about leadership in small units like that versus the large units or is it simply simply that the circumstances of the change would if you were sitting down with some of our special forces would they be talking differently about leadership do you think no i don't think so and of course everyone that's in the special forces was in one of the other services at some point before that and so they would have been grounded in whatever those services values and standards are they would, would take that with them i think you would be right in saying that the context is just different. Whilst the context is different, the, the principles are the same, and they would recognise the values, the standards, the behaviours that, that we would. They will probably be asked, the demands on them will be greater at certain periods of time. Um, but no, I, think, I think they would recognise the, uh, the same as we do, the, the core tenants. And we speak to them as well, and they're very open and receptive to Centre for Army Leadership stuff. Wonderful. Well, I think, Colonel, we, we could talk about this all day, and we, we probably will. We really we could. could. We really we probably could. need to bring the, the podcast to a close. So it's just for me to say thank you ever so much for inviting us here to the Centre of Army Leadership at Sandhurst, and thank you for giving up your valuable time uh, and giving us uh, a sort of peek inside the, the hive mind of the think tank for army leadership. A real, real privilege to come and talk to you. It's, it's, it's nice to talk to other people who are, if you'll forgive the phrase, nerds about leadership, yeah. but also someone who this is your professional goal as well. Just before we go, we've, we've talked about the Centre for Army Leadership. Um, you do some fantastic job reaching out. So whether you're in the military or not in the military, there's some fantastic content that you can access. In fact, you're way better than we are in terms of sharing that kind of thing. Could you talk a bit about some of the, the things that people could check out after this, whether it be podcasts or documents or anything else? Yeah, so just a straightforward search on any search engine for Centre for Army Leadership. If you spell Centre the British way, you'll get us rather than the Americans, although they've got some good stuff on there as well. But that will signpost you to everything we've got and any social media or podcast uh, platform. If you search Centre for Army Leadership, you'll, you'll find us there as well. So everything that we write 
is on there. And I would say, I think most people agree, it's relatively readable and- Excellent content. There's, there's some good infographics that, that spell stuff out. There are some short exercises on there. There's some short papers which are designed for any, any leader or manager to, to take, perhaps if they want a particular topic to interrogate with their team or develop with their team. It's a, they're called Leadership Insights, short essays or think pieces designed perhaps to be slightly off-centre or controversial in a way, and then a small collection of questions at the end to generate a discussion. And so if you've got an hour with your team or a particular topic that you want to pick out, we're approaching 50 on there now, you can find something on there, pick it out, ask them to read it and um, have the discussion about it. The, there is also a lot of signposting to other leadership resources, small exercises that people can do with their teams, followership, development stuff, which we've just done for our conference. All pretty straightforward stuff. And most of all, all of our contact details are on there. So if stuff isn't on there or you need to find stuff, then you can track us down really easily. So you're on Twitter as well, because that's where I see regular, um, excellent infographics and discussion points. Um, uh, and uh, this is, I can't remember where this has happened. I know you do a competition, which is, I believe, open not just to serving military people uh yeah, so essay competition essay competition which has just been relaunched as well the theme being un, unsung army heroes for this year and there's a junior category and a senior category from 2000 words at 3000 words open source anyone across the world can enter that prize giving at the national army museum at some point next year and similarly we also have a youtube channel so all of the annual conferences and award-giving ceremonies and stuff are all on the YouTube channel as well. Fantastic. Well, channel, once again, thank you very much. That's been really insightful. And I think we've got some stuff to go and reflect on. And if you'll have us back, we'd love to come back in maybe a year's time to see how things are developing and how you're getting along. Absolutely. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Well, that's all for today's first on the road episode, and we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. I have to say it was a real pleasure to go back to Sandhurst and even more of a pleasure to wander around the grounds of the military academy without having to worry about committing some junior officer related infraction, which inevitably I would have committed in a past life. And actually, it was nice to see other people running around the parade ground instead of me as well. Well, look, you know the drill by now. If you like what you've heard, please tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast. The numbers of our listeners are continuing to climb, but your mission is to help us find even more people who share our interest in leadership management. So please tell your friends and family and let's get them uh, onto the podcast as well. We're also available on Twitter at battlingwithbiz with a Z and on email at battlingwithbusiness at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. And remember, we're looking for email and tweets from some of our further flung listeners. So if you're in some of those far off countries, please let us know who you are. We'd love to hear from you. For now, though, thanks for listening and we'll speak again soon.